0: Appreciate those with steep driveways and long driveways who got here this morning. For those of you like us who have short driveways, we're glad you're here too. But we especially pray, pleased with those that made the extra effort. Uh, and there are a lot of you this morning, and I appreciate it. I uh, call your attention to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. I'm going to. We've, we've been in this section a little longer than I expected, but uh, I trust it will be, has been helpful to you. Our, we're going to read 8 to 12. We've already been here twice. One more time, and then we're off of it. And I say to you, whosoever shall confess me before men, Him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. He that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers... Be not anxious how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say. For the Holy Spirit shall teach you, be teaching you in that same hour what you ought to say. Thank you, Father, for the time we have this morning. Use it in the lives of each of those who are here and each of those that are tuning in. We pray. Amen. Now, last time we saw that our text is very, very clear about the real responsibility of believers in Christ to proclaim the gospel before the lost, regardless of consequences to ourselves, and especially in times of persecution and pressure. And there were two promises connected with that responsibility. One is verse 8, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the angels, Jesus said. And verse 12, the Holy Spirit shall teach you, in the same hour what you shall say. So a promise concerning the future on the judgment day and a promise concerning the present, right, when you're on the hot seat for the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at those things. Our text is also very clear about the responsibility of all mankind to respond to that proclamation of the gospel in repentance and faith, regardless of the consequences to themselves. Regardless of the consequences to themselves, all men on this planet have the responsibility to repent. Acts seventeen thirteen, Paul said that God commands all men everywhere to repent, and he goes on and describes why because the end time judge has come and paid for sins and risen again and ascended and uh, so forth, and the job of the church at the end of the Gospel of Luke is that repentance would be preached to all nations and what an amazing thing here as we think about it so here we are in our text and there's two warnings uh, to unbelievers in relationship to their responsibility to when they persecute believers and bring them uh, in front of them, whether it's in the dining room of the home, uh, who are you to say that in my house, or whether it's in a synagogue, or whether it's in a, a courtroom of the Gentiles, uh, and you put them on the spot, uh, and think that you've got them by the throat. The ones who are really in danger on that in that situation is the persecutors, the unbelievers, not the believers. Even if you got a gun to their head, you're the one in danger, not them. You might pull the trigger and they get to go to heaven a little earlier than expected, but you, you are the one in danger. And. There's a lot of pressure on believers right now, right now, coming in the West. Canada's under it right now, aren't they? And they think they got the church by the throat. I want to tell you something. It's the persecutors they are in danger. You've risen up against God. You're asking for it. Look what happened to the Jews when they tried it. In 70 AD. Look what happened to the Roman Empire when they tried it. So it's very important. And those that, in verse 9, him that denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. So professing believers, that could refer to professing believers who, who find out they don't really have faith and they cave in uh, uh, and recant because they haven't been born again and they don't have what it takes to stand But it can also refer to the hearers of the message on that occasion. And are denying Christ themselves. And are trying to get others to do it. Very serious business. In fact it can even get to the place where they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now not all persecutors get to that place. Not all unbelievers get to that place. But that brings us to our subject this morning, what Jesus is talking about in verse 10. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And basically, Jesus is saying, you're not just rejecting men. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit and what he's seeking to do. Now this is a very big and very difficult subject. And we have to look at it as best as we can if we really want to understand what Jesus is saying in verse 10. Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, a word it will be forgiven, and in contrast to being forgiven for speaking against Jesus, but unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit not going to be forgiven better know what this is right so let's look and let's start off with Mark uh, the first written account dealing with this particular subject Mark 3 in verse 38 we often find this Mark chapter 3 and verse 28, did I say 38? That's a little too far in it. That's a bridge too far for chapter 3. Mark 3, 28. Mark chapter 3. Well, we better go back to verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, notice who these people are. They're religious leaders. Said. Said. He has Beelzebub. They're talking about Jesus and what they were saying about him. And by the prince of demons, casts he out demons. So he's the devil, and by the devil, he casts them out. And he that's pretty bad. Can't get much worse than that. Speaking against Jesus. And he called them unto him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No man enters into a strong man's house and spoils his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he'll spoil his house. Verily I say to you all, now here's the good news. This is very good news. You may know somebody that needs to hear this. Because there's all kinds of people there that say, I've done something so bad, God will never forgive me, so I can't be saved, so don't even talk to me. I had a next door neighbor when I was trying to share the gospel. Some of you have heard this. I was trying to give him the gospel and he said, I I can't be saved. I said, why? He said, I murdered two people. And I thought, you're my next door neighbor? People tell you stuff sometimes when you're witnessing to them. You're kind of surprised that they tell you. But in his mind, murder was an unforgivable sin. So he had, don't waste your time with me. But notice what Jesus said. This is the very, very good news here. Barely, very, bare, now by the way, that one, the next door neighbor in Athens or the plains. I just want to clarify that so nobody gets the wrong idea. <laughs> This is another city, another time. Verily I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven to men. All sins underline all sins. That's pretty good, right? Isn't that encouragement? We jump over the hard stuff and painful stuff and we forget the comforting stuff. Aren't you glad it said this? All sins? So don't say, I can't be forgiven because I did this, I did that, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. There's an awful long list under that word all. And some of them are horrible. But what a wonderful thing, because of the cross of Calvary, all sins shall be forgiven to the sons of men. Just stop there, don't run over it. Stop there and enjoy that. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. The book of Colossians says to Christians, he's forgiven us all our trespasses. Not 99%, but that 1% is too bad, so you're going to get it for that. All sins shall be forgiven to the sons of men, and blasphemies which with they blaspheme, speaking against. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said, He has an unclean spirit. Now Jesus does not say, You just committed this sin. He said, You people are in danger of it. You're in danger of eternal damnation. Now all unbelievers are in danger of eternal damnation. But these people are particularly in danger. It's of eternal damnation. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Which means they weren't just talking against Jesus. They're talking against the Holy Spirit who was in Jesus. Who anointed Jesus. To be the Messiah, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one with the Holy Spirit, anointed to do these miracles. So they weren't just speaking against Jesus, they were speaking against the Holy Spirit who enabled Jesus to do every miracle he ever did. So, that's what he's saying there. Very serious section. Go to Matthew 12, which is a second account of this same event Matthew 12 verse 24 to 30 is well I've got to read it I have to read it 24 to 30 but when the Pharisees heard it this is Jesus healing somebody who had a demon he was blind and dumb And he healed him in so much that the blind and dumb spoke and saw. So in in this case, his physical afflictions were caused by a spiritual problem. He was demon possessed. The demon was torturing him that way. And verse 23, all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? And the people started doing the spiritual mathematics on it. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the Messiah? He did this? He's whipping Satan? Isn't he? Could this be the Messiah? And the leadership felt threatened by that. So they jumped in with this statement that had absolutely no basis of fact. Remember, accusation doesn't equal conviction, right? You listen to the politicians and the pundits on the on the news, and they accuse each other of this and that and this and that, all kinds of stuff. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But if someone accuses you something, it doesn't mean you're guilty, it just means they're accusing you. And they're so they're just throwing out an unfounded accusation. They're just throwing mud, they're throwing dirt, trying to make Jesus look bad, because they don't want the crowd to go after Him. And so they come up with the nastiest thing you can imagine. And there are Jewish people today who still promote this very lie. There are rabbis today that say, yeah, he did miracles. We admit that. But he did them by the power of the devil. we learned it in Egypt. They're still saying the same thing. But the Pharisees heard it. They said, this fellow does not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. It, notice, they didn't deny cast it out. They just denied the source, which they were in no place to know. People make up stuff and put it on the internet all the time. We can, you know, they just make it out of this thing that thing. And that's what they were doing. Jesus knew their thoughts and said, every kingdom divided against itself has brought the desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, and that's what you're saying I'm doing. He's divided against himself, and how shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub, that was a nickname for Satan, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they'll be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the what? Underline this, the Spirit of God. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God... Then the kingdom of God's come upon you because I'm the anointed Messiah who's anointed with the spirit and does his miracles by the spirit. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man. Then he'll spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say to you all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. Again that's an awful good verse isn't it? Aren't you glad for it? Get the encouragement out of it. Suck the encouragement out of it. Everybody here probably has some sins that you think that's too bad for God to really erase. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. There's your eraser. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven men. Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, which they were, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age, neither in the age to come. So in one rendering, I believe it's a mark, that calls it eternal sin. Or some say this is eternal sin, and here it says in King James, either in this age or in the age to come. Now let's go back to Luke 11. In Luke 11, 14, we have the same story. Luke 11, 14 to 23, just so you can note it, that Luke tells the same stuff that Mark and Matthew do. Luke 11, 14 to 23 is that story. And I'm not going to read it again, but that's where it's at. Now, we'll go back to chapter. Now, uh, I've got something here, up here, if you want it. comes from Alan Lewis. Alan Lewis was an OU professor's son who got saved here in Athens and got married here in Athens. And Alec, Al, Alan and his wife, Anne, uh, are still serving the Lord and uh, being used of the Lord. And Alan wrote a 13-page paper on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's excellent what he wrote. I've got a, some copies of that up here. If you want one of those copies to read, please read it. And then bring it back so somebody else can, can read it. But in, in his analysis of all of this, Alan had some points right at the beginning. He said, number one, everyone agreed that this man had real physical problems. He was not faking an illness. That's the man that was dumb and blind, that Jesus cast evil out. Two, everyone agreed that the man got better. His problems were solved. He could see, hear, and was no longer uh, demonized. So everyone agreed he had real physical problems. He wasn't faking an illness. Everyone agreed that the man got better. Everyone agreed that this healing was completely supernatural. The man was not healed by natural medicine. He was... Uh, healed by a complete miracle. No disagreement on that between Jesus and the Pharisees or the crowd. Point number four. Everyone also agreed that Jesus was responsible for the healing. The man got better because of what Jesus did to him. On those four points, everybody was agreed. I'm going to add a fifth as I thought about it. Everyone agreed the demon... Was the cause of the physical problem. Everyone. This was a demon. Fallen angel. That was the cause of everything. And they all agreed on that. Nobody said it was just a natural issue. That could be cured by medicine or anything else. But there were two different reactions to the, this set of facts. This set of agreed on facts. And we find that, and Alan mentioned this, you find it among politicians. Democrats look at something different than Republicans. Pro-abortion, anti-abortion people look at the same stuff and look at it differently. And the conclusion the crowd was coming to is this might be the Messiah. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's he's doing these miracles. The conclusion of leadership was pulled out of the air. have like, got to say something. Yeah, he did it, but he did by the power of Satan. Calling the Holy Spirit's work, Satan's work. That's the bigger picture. Now, let's come back to Luke 12 and let's back up a moment and get a bigger picture on this whole subject. And as we do that, I think probably the best thing is that both believers and non-believers sin against the Holy Spirit. Everybody sins against the Holy Spirit. And the Bible records certain sins that believers do, you and I do, against the Holy Spirit. So let's not just jump on non-believers here. Let's look at the sins we do against the Holy Spirit. And once we do that, we'll look at what unbelievers do. You can just categorize these in two boxes. Okay. Number one. According to 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So the day you are saved, your body becomes a temple. Your individual body is a temple. And every sin you do from the day you're born again is worse than what you did before you were born again. Because now you're a temple and you're doing it in the temple. Just a fact. 1st Corinthians 6:19 and 20 and the local church is collectively a temple 1st Corinthians 3:16 and 17 and it's very serious to defile God's temple and if you want to get come under serious dealings by God just try to defile God's temple and you'll get it so we are our bodies are a temple of the holy spirit and that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And the context is fornication is worse as a Christian than as a non-Christian because your body's a temple now. But not only can we defile the temple according to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 19, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4, 29-32. Grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed to the day of redemption. He's stuck with you for the rest of your life. So don't grieve Him. Um, There's some things He doesn't like that you might think are okay. But why do you want to grieve Him? You're, he's, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. It's like, you men, it's like living with your wife and you know she doesn't like something. And you might think it's okay, but she doesn't. She's stuck with you, right? <laughs> and so we need to be sensitive, right? And so that's the whole picture here. In First Thessalonians 4.19, quench not the Spirit. So we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can do things that uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't like it when we do it. He's not going to leave us. But it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira tried lying to the Holy Spirit. It cost them their life. I personally believe they were saved. I think it was a, it was a judgment there in Acts chapter 5. But Peter said, you're not lying to men, but to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You're testing the Holy Spirit. The testing and the lying is the same thing. You're just asking for some kind of uh, serious discipline. So born again Christians can and do gr- grieve and test and sometimes lie to the Holy Spirit. We pretend we're more spiritual than we are or give people that impression. It's not good. We can be physically chastised for that and corrected. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why would we try to do things like that? But there's forgiveness with those things, but sometimes there's chastening, correction, and those kind of things. And so forth. Now, that's what Christians can do. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something a born-again Christian can do. There's never been a born-again Christian that's blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you look at the text we looked at in Mark and Matthew and Luke, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something believers are doing, it's something persecutors are doing and enemies of Christ are doing. or It's not even what they're doing, it's what they're endangering. In 1971, I, I, I remember this very, very well. There was a gal that uh, was in InterVarsity with us at that time, and she even went with my roommate Tim and some others of us to Urbana. And I remember her sitting on the steps of Galbert Chapel with her face in her hands crying. And the leader of InterVarsity went up to her, and asked her what was the matter and she said, almost did it. I almost did it. He said, what did you almost do? It? She said, I almost blasphemed the Holy Spirit and lost my salvation. I don't know what kind of teaching or what her background was, but in her mind, she almost did it. <laughs> now that gal was untaught and mistaught. The people in the New Testament that are in danger of committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are not believers. The people in the New Testament that are in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit are not born again people. Nowhere in the Bible do you even see rank and file Christians committing that sin. In the Bible, the people that are in danger of committing that sin were the Pharisees and the scribes and the leadership It was a leadership deal. Unregenerate leaders. Not rank and file people. I'm just getting the context of every time this appears. Leaders that should know better. Leaders that pretended to be Bible teachers. Leaders that were not born again. And were unbelievers themselves. And rejecting God's light. We've examined several sins against the Holy Spirit that believers can do, but now I want to look at sins that the lost, unregenerate can do, and again get the wider context. Turn with me to Romans 1. Romans 1 is not just the background of a certain class of sinners that do some particular sins that many people think of when they turn to this chapter. Romans 1 is the background of the whole Gentile world who have gone into idolatry and held down the truth about the Creator <clears throat> and therefore, been given over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is the mind of the lost. All the lost have reprobate minds. The only way to get for God to do is in sovereign grace to reach down and take somebody with a reprobate mind and give them the gospel and have the Holy Spirit give them renewed mind. Romans twelve one. And so Romans 1, 18 and following is the default position of every person on this planet. Now I know in Romans 2 he talks with the Jews. Okay, so the Jews are Romans 2. But it's no better. It's even worse in Romans 2. <clears throat> Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in by unrighteousness. What is the truth that they're repressing? The fact that there is a personal God in heaven that made them. That they're accountable to. And is who's revealed himself. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. God's shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen... Being understood by the sin, by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, and they became fools. That's everybody on this planet in some fashion. Apart from regeneration. And he says you're without Excuse. And everybody likes to go to this chapter and deal with certain sins that Paul mentions, but those certain sins are just the more overt things that are one of a long list of sins at the end of the chapter. And the background of this is these are the, this is the reason people need the gospel. They're broken. They're in rebellion. They're in apostasy. And these are the candidates for Romans 1, 14 to 16. These are people that need the gospel and need for us to give them the gospel that are candidates for salvation. So as bad as this list is, and you can read it, and it is really bad. All these things can be forgiven. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first That's Romans 2 and also to the Greek. That's Romans 1. So there it is. So that's the background of really the whole world. It was the background of the world before there was a Jew. When God saved the first Jew. So everybody has this background. That's the point of Romans. Everybody has the background of Romans 1. By the way, everybody's got the background of Romans 3. No man seeks after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. That's background of everybody. So that's the picture. It's not a pleasant picture. It's a very ugly picture. And yet, in that ugly picture, people out of this condition can be saved and are being saved. Because every saved person, in some way, is part of this. Before they're saved. Genesis 6.3, as you go back to the time before the flood, God said, My spirit will not always want, strive with man. Because men were striving, men were fighting God back then. Well, well does God you ever hear people say, Well, would God give people a second chance? I mean, at the end of history, maybe we got a judgment day. You'll give them a second chance. Well. That would be nice. (laughs) We hope so. We have got no authority from the word to say that. But I'd like to say uh, man's first chance was in the Garden of Eden. They blew that. Man's second chance was after the Garden of Eden when the sacrifice system was set up. And they blew that. And they've gone the way of Cain. Not the way of Abel. Man's next chance was... uh, (laughs) Uh, happened when uh, God uh, allowed them to continue even though they weren't doing everything they should do and they started the Tower of Babel and that was that chance then the next chance was Abraham and the starting of the Jewish nation and they blew that and then God gave the exile into Syria and and, uh, Babylon and then God sent his son after sending prophets and prophets and They sent his son and they killed him. Oh, surely that's the last chance. No. Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came, the church started preaching the gospel, and men get another chance. Don't criticize God for not Mm -hmm. giving people enough chances. You read the sermons in Acts 2, 36 and 40, and Acts 3, 18 to 16. God, these were people who had denied Christ, even crucified Christ, and they were given another chance. Peter preached to them the forgiveness of sins. So, as bad as it was, they got another chance. And then think about Peter, who denied Christ three times. He. He didn't lose his salvation. He, he spoke a word against the Son. He even put some expletives in there to give it some credibility. And Paul blasphemed Christ. In fact, he caused others to blaspheme Christ before he was a Christian. He was injurious, he says. He hurt other people. And a blasphemer, that's what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, 12, and 13. I was injurious and a blasphemer. Well, who is he blaspheming? Jesus Christ is who he is blaspheming. And he was trying to get other people to blaspheme. And he said in Acts 26 9, I did many things. Contrary to the name of Jesus. Acts 26 9. It was the name of Jesus. He hated that name. And then he had to believe on that name to get saved. And he did. By God's grace. Read Acts 9, 1, 9, 14, 21, and 27. And he began to preach in that name. The very name. And he was ready to die for that name. Acts 21 13. And he called all that name to be saved. Acts twenty two sixteen, 16 himself and wanted others to. So Paul was doing some pretty big sins. He not only was speaking against the name of Jesus... Before he was saved. He's trying to get other people to do it. Major league sinner. Paul was not a bush league sinner. He was a major league sinner. And yet God forgave him. So what's the difference? Paul was kicking against the goats. What's going on here? What's the difference? How can we sort all this out? Obviously, God is a big forgiver, just like we're big sinners. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity whose particular role is to bring people to repentance and faith. How how come you can speak against the Son of Man and be forgiven? And if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. You are sinning against the member of the Godhead whose particular job is to apply redemption to your soul. And bring you to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. You want to insult Him? You want to sin against Him? He's the one that's the author of the new birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Marvel not, I say to you, you must be born again. He's the one who, from John 16, 9, who comes to Christians, and coming to Christians, He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment of sin because they believe not on Me. He's the one that does that. If He doesn't do it, it won't get done. Without that work, salvation doesn't get applied. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 2. First Peter 1 Peter two. Watch as the Apostle Peter talks about these saved people from these different regions that he's ministering to. He talks about the work of God the Father. He talks about the work of God the Son. He talks about the work of God the Holy Spirit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through sanctification of the Spirit. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. He's describing these people and the work of the Godhead in their lives. One before the foundation of the world. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's the predestinator. One before. On the cross of Calvary where the second person of the Trinity purchased our salvation. And who presents it though? Who applies it through sanctification of the Spirit? That's not a post-salvation sanctification. That's a pre-salvation sanctification where the Holy Spirit begins to deal with you and bring you to conviction of sin. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, 13. 2 Thessalonians 1, 13. That's not right. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 2.13 Paul looking back on what happened in Thessalonica, he says, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. He's not thanking them that they believed. He's thanking God that they believed. You don't get any credit. We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So what an exciting thing. Unto whom he called you by our gospel, by the obtaining glory of Jesus Christ. Now, the sign miracles Jesus was doing... All the healings, all the raisings from the dead, all the casting out demons was a means by which God could, cause they were prophesied that the Messiah would do that, they were the means by which God would use to bring people to faith in Christ. And that's what some of the people were starting to move that way. And then the Pharisees jumped in and misinterpreted and maligned it. And God anointed Jesus with the Spirit, Isaiah 61-1, to bring the nation to the Messiah. Just like the sign miracles of Moses was brought to bring Moses into a place where the nation who would, would accept him, the miracles of Jesus, were the same. But they resisted. it. And Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so are you. They resisted the Spirit. You're resisting the Spirit. Acts 6.10, Acts 7.51. In fact, all unsaved people resist the Holy Spirit. Is there any unsaved person, unregenerate person that doesn't resist the Holy Spirit? All unsaved people resist the Holy Spirit. That's why you need what is called in the Bible, irresistible grace. Because there is a work of God, that, even of God's Spirit, that is resisted. But there's a work of God that won't be resisted. And that's why you're saved. It's not because you're better than other people. It's God just ran you down in grace. Because apart from that, all unsaved people have reprobate minds. They're given over. They resist the Spirit. They've all gone the way of Cain. They're all doing what Psalm 127 says they can't do they're building a city without God building a house without God Cain tried that he built a house home and he built a city but it was without God he went out of the presence of the Lord Psalm 127 says except the Lord build the house they labor in vain to build it except the Lord keep the city the watchman wakes in vain and James 2.7 uh, James says of the unsaved rich around them don't they blaspheme the name by which they're called they just do And that name was Jesus, and in Luke twenty-three thirty-nine, we find blasphemers, and Jesus can be saved because in Luke twenty-three thirty-nine, both thieves were blaspheming him, and then one got saved. So you can speak against the Son of Man, and be saved. You speak against the Holy Spirit, you're in bigger trouble. Now they're equal. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter t- two. Hebrews chapter two. These are professing Christians. Some among them, professing Hebrew Christians, may have been unsaved. And some of them were saved. And these great warnings here. You go back, you'll be lost. And we've got to hear all those warnings. Not just say, oh, that's a warning. I'm saved. Everybody has to hear the warnings. The warnings are a way to keep you on the road. Deer crossing. Curve. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're going to hit one. It just helps you stay on the road, right? of repentance and faith. So therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, that's the Ten Commandments, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. God also bearing them witness both with signs, wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. That's a work of God. And you don't want to despise that or ignore that. Hebrews 6, one. There is an apostasy that's final. Where people know the truth and turn from it. And I'm not saying anybody knows if they've done that. I don't know that anybody knows that they've done that. But it can be done. Only God knows who's done that and who hasn't. But who wants to play with that fire? Therefore, leaving the principles and doctrine of Christ, let's go into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance and dead works and faith toward God. Some churches never leave that. They're just preaching the gospel every Sunday. Nobody ever goes beyond that. The doctrine of baptisms laying on hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This will do if God permits, for it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, this is apostasy, to renew them again to repentance. They're apostates, seeing they crucify themselves, the Son of God, afresh and put him to open shame. He goes on, in verse 9 he says, But beloved, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. You don't want to be at that crowd. It's not they were saved and lost their salvation. People that have salvation are, verse 9, But you don't want to be one of those false professors that goes through some motions and then leaves. And the Spirit was tugging at your heart, but you didn't get beyond that. Hebrews chapter 10, one more, verse 26. This is really awesome. Again, he's warning. Why is he doing these serious warnings? These were Hebrew Christians that were being tempted to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism so they wouldn't be persecuted. That's what the background of this is. The pressures were just get, get, get away from Christ Go back being a Jew. Jewish religion's legal. Christianity's illegal. Just go back and everything will be fine. Just be a Jew. Don't be a Christian anymore. And he's warning them about that thing. Not that they did it or would do it, but they needed to have the warning so they wouldn't do it. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully, this is called apostasy. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, you heard the truth, you know the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. You can't just stop being a Christian and go be a Jew and go back to the animal sacrifices. But a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy, who's trodden underfoot the Son of God. And has counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified an unholy thing. And the worst one is saved for last. And is done despite to the Holy Spirit. What is despite? I'll get to that but I want to read a couple more verses. For we know him that says vengeance belongs to me. I'll recompense says the Lord. Again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, he goes on and he says uh, in verse 39, we are not of them that draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of his soul. That's a big qualification. He's saying, I'm saying all this. I don't think you're that and I don't think I'm that. But there are people that do that. And if they draw back, verse 38, my soul, i have no pleasure in them. Now, what's this despite to the Holy Spirit? The Greek word is hubriso. We get hubris from that word. And uh, King James translates it despite, but many modern translations translates it outrage, something like that, or insult. And so here's a picture. Um, You've got a boss at work. He's the guy who gives you his job. He can fire you at any moment. Are you going to go in and insult him? <laughs> you going to insult your boss? Is that smart? Is that even a good idea? Insult the very one that you owe your job to? Outrage him? Do something that outrages him? How about the policeman that's got you pulled over by the side of the road? Are you going to uh, insult him? That's the difference between a ticket and not a ticket. I told you about the friend that borrowed my 61 Chevy. He never borrowed again, but he got pulled over and the policeman started writing up a ticket and he said, "I'll take a order of fries and a coke." I couldn't believe he said that. He never borrowed my car again. Ever. You don't insult policemen. And we have we have something called resisting arrest. Not smart. People do something bad, they get arrested, and then they resist arrest. It never goes well for them. Policemen don't like that. They're in a position of respect and authority. And uh, so you wouldn't do it to a professor in class. You wouldn't normally insult a professor in class. That's the difference between an F and an A, maybe. So, or even your parents. So, insulting someone who has authority over you, legitimate authority over you, is not a good thing. Outraging people that have authority over you is not a good thing. Now, this outrage is apostasy, leaving Christianity. Christianity. Not that you really had it, you wouldn't leave it, but still, it's asking for judgment. Now back to Luke chapter 12. I want to reiterate something I said last week and I mentioned already today. When we look in Luke chapter 12... He talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in verse 10 that unbelievers can do. Who are these unbelievers? When they bring you to the synagogues and to the magistrates and the powers. The unbelievers that are doing this are people in leadership who are getting Christians in trouble legally. That's the picture. That's the connection. And the Holy Spirit is promise to help christians are in that position and it's the responsibility of the persecutors to hear what the holy spirit's saying through the persecuted on that occasion yes technically the lord jesus is not on earth doing signed miracles so the blasphemy of the holy spirit can't be done today in the way it was done when he was on earth doing signed miracles but Christians, born-again Christians, have that same Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. We don't have that power to do sign miracles, but we do have the power to preach the gospel. And so to fight against this is a bad thing. A dangerous thing. In Acts 13, when Paul preached in the synagogue and they blasphemed and, and cursed and ignored them, Paul, Paul and, and the company did what Jesus said to do in Luke 9:5 and Luke 10:11: knock the dust off your feet. That's what Jews did when they would be in Gentile lands and they get back to the Holy Land. Right at the border, they'd kick the dust off. It was a symbol of disassociation. I don't want anything to do with you. We're done. Acts 18, they did something very similar. Your blood be on your own head, and he separated. So, it's a strong, visible picture of total dissociation. You are incorrigible, you're unreachable, we gave you the gospel, you've not only rejected, but you're persecuting, we're out of here. So the point is, who's in the most danger? The persecutors. The dare. After all that God has done, all the history behind that gospel message, and the Christians that are being persecuted, the dare raise up against it. Now, whenever whenever we teach on this subject, there's some tender-hearted person that imagines they've done what that girl 50 years ago thought she'd done. I, I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me just say this, and then I'll quote some other people so you'll know that others agree with this. People who've done this aren't worried about doing it. It never's entered their mind that there's a problem here. People who've done this have no concern about doing it. They're quite they're quite confident that they've got nothing to worry about and that they believe they're even doing the right thing. So people who have a mental sensitivity or people who have a tender heart and think, oh, I might have done this and so now I can be forgiven. If you done it, you wouldn't worry about it. The fact that you're worried about it is proof you've never done it. Leon Morris. They call evil good. Men in such a situation cannot repent and seek forgiveness. They lack a sense of sin. They reject God's competence to de- declare what's right. It is a continuing attitude that is the ultimate sin. God's power to forgive is not abated, but this kind of sinner no longer has the capacity to repent and believe. They're not interested in repentance. They're not interested in faith. You couldn't get through with them with an atomic bomb. They just hardened. R.T. France. To attribute the work of God to his enemy is an unforgivable perversion of truth and betrays a settled opposition to God. These people are setting their heart and mind against God. Moral Tenney. The slander against the Holy Spirit is irre. Mediable because it cuts a man off from the only person that can change his inner life. J.W. Shepherd, such a high-handed sinning against the light so deadens the conscience as to render repentance morally impossible. God's grace is sufficient for every repentant sinner, but repentance becomes impossible to those who set themselves in defiance, defiant opposition to the Holy Spirit. William Graham Scroggie, they who fear that they've committed this sin prove that they have not by their fear. J.C. Ryle, the sin of which our Lord refers is that in this passage appears to be the sin of deliberately rejecting God's truth with the heart, while the truth is clearly known with the head. It's a combination of light in the understanding and determined wickedness of the will. F. F. Bruce says it's tantamount to apostasy. And... Uh, They don't repent, and they don't even know they're sinning. We all know people think it's a virtue to be an unbeliever or an atheist or or anti-Christian. I mean, that's how far down they are. Now, we never know if somebody's done this. And they don't know if they've done it. God saved some pretty bad sinners, right? When do you cross over that line? Nobody knows. Apparently, there is a time where... You're unreachable, even in this life. God's done with you. That's it. Philip Reichen um, quotes the Dutch theologian Herman Bivink on this, uh, on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I thought what he said was very good. Bivink said, "...a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation, not in doubting or simply denying the truth." But in a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect. In other words, this person's convinced this is true, this is right. But they don't want it. They go against the conviction of the intellect. My intellect's been convinced. I know the Bible's true. I know. My intellect's convinced. And. Our intellect does get convinced when we get saved. But this person's convinced, but they don't move forward with the will. Now, many people are convinced it's true and they hold back. We all did that. But this person continues to hold back. Anyway, Bavink says, A sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation, not in doubting or simply denying the truth, but in in a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of the conscience, against the dictates of the heart, in a conscious, willful, and intentional imputation to the influence and working of Satan, that which is clearly recognized as God's work, in a willful declaration that the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the abyss, and that truth is a lie and that Christ is Satan himself. And that's exactly what these people were very close to doing. Well, they're the ones in danger. And uh, I have more to say on this, but I need to, to cut this down. Um, what a privilege it is for us to be rejected. To be reviled. To be criticized, to be put on the spot by persecutors who hate God and hate the light and call good evil and evil good, as Isaiah puts it. That's an opportunity to proclaim Christ. That's what this is talking about in verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the same manner what you will say. Even to those people. Now, you're not going to out-argue them. Because argument doesn't hit with these people. You, just, you give the truth on that occasion, stand up to the animosity, and let God do the work. And the Holy Spirit shall teach you in the same hour what you shall say. Um, remember when the apostles were hauled in from the Sanhedrin and they said... Uh, We can't say anything against it when they saw the man that was healed. We can't say anything against it. But they couldn't say anything for it because they hated it so bad. And they knew that these men had been with Jesus. So God was poking them, wasn't he? Poking them. And they just pressed it down. In 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12, it speaks about those who speak against you. This is a common thing. This is not an uncommon thing. Christians are criticized Churches are criticized. Pastors are criticized. People love religion, anything but Christ and anything but the gospel. Maybe there's someone that you 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 pretty much in that camp. But, or you know someone. That doesn't mean you've done this sin, but it does mean you might be getting close to it. And to die without Christ in unbelief is a bad thing. To live with unbelief and hardness of heart is a very bad thing. You can't say, oh, at the last minute, I've got to get on the train to glory. You might miss the train. So may God speak to your heart today about your need to believe in Christ, repent of your sins and believe in Christ. May the Holy Spirit do that work. And if He's done that work, thank Him for it. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Left to myself, i would never done it. Thank you for beginning your good work in me. And you'll continue to perform it to the day. Of Christ Jesus, I do believe that Jesus is God incarnate. I do believe He died for my sins and rose again, I'm trusting in Him to save me, not myself. And I thank you for enlightening my mind and changing my heart, Father. We come before you today, and we pray your work would be done in our families, in our communities. There's some raised in this church that have departed from the faith. There's some that know the truth and hate the truth. There's some that we love very much that are not on the narrow way. And the only reason we remain on that is because of Your grace, not because we're smarter than other people or better than other people, but because of Your work, of Your Spirit in our life and Your continued work. So, Father, thank You and challenge our hearts today. Instead of blaspheming the Spirit, may we thank God for the Spirit. And may we be instruments of that Holy Spirit in time of opposition and persecution. Fill us with your Spirit when we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.